And let's turn in, uh, <clears throat> in our ancient text to the book of Esther. So that's found on page 781. 781. <clears throat> the book of Esther comes right before Job. <clears throat> and we'll be looking at uh, chapter, chapters 5 and 6 today. So we started a, a series on Esther a few weeks ago. Uh, we'll look at this today and again in a couple of weeks uh, bef- when we'll conclude this series. It's not a long book. If you're not familiar with the book of Esther or the story of Esther, I can't uh, recap the whole thing for you today, but um, I think you'll get pretty much the gist of it as we read and as we talk through things. It's a wonderful story. However, it's a story that's always been, um, shall we say, um, disregarded by some as pastors and theologians. It's a book that doesn't mention the name of God whatsoever. doesn't mention any miracles that God performed. doesn't mention anyone praying to God or anything of that nature. And so some people say this could be a story about anything. Um, but we do believe that it is in the Bible for a reason, that Jesus has affirmed it as the Word of God, and therefore um, we look at it once again today. Chapter 5 begins in a situation where Esther has actually found the courage to go into the king, King Xerxes, ask for, um, for the ability to speak with him, and when she does that, she invites him to a banquet. <clears throat> and um, they come to a banquet, and basically she invites them to another banquet. This is King Xerxes and his prime minister, Haman. And that's, uh, where we get, uh, that's where we are when we get to verse 9. So let's begin reading there, verse 9 of chapter 5. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. So Haman is the antagonist of the story. Um, He's a Persian of Persians. Mordecai is a Jew. And uh, we quickly pick up that's the reason why he will not honor um, Haman. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has now invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. Chapter 6, that night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway. 
who, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man who delights or, or who the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden on, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just what you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, with him the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we had friends back in Michigan who were big outdoor sorts of people. They did a lot of hiking and kayaking, and, and that was way back in time, right before hiking and kayaking were the cool sort of thing to do. So to prep for these little occasions, these little outings, they would actually dry their own food. Okay? Now again, you have to remember this is way back. This is before people had dehydrators on their kitchen counter right next to their juicers. This was a time when, when nobody I knew did this sort of thing, right? But you've all seen that. Dried food, you've seen the result of it, right? You take, you take fresh fruit like, uh, like apples and pears and strawberries and bananas and, and what you do is you suck all the water right out of them to the point that they become sort of unrecognizable. They become these shriveled up, colorless, tasteless things that you would hardly recognize. I'm told the nutrients are all still there, right? But the texture and the flavor have been vandalized. Just my humble opinion. Just like that dry food, doctrines 
can be treated just like that. Doctrines can become bland and flavorless and often controversial when you drain the story out of them. Take election, for, an, for instance, the doctrine of election. When you take the story out of election, it almost becomes something totally different. When you take the story of, of God calling Abraham, calling him out of his home, away from his family, to a new place and telling him, Abraham, through you, I'm going to save the entire world. I'm going to build a new creation, and it's all going to begin with you. When you take that story out of the story of election, it becomes something totally different. When you take the story of, of one of, of Abraham's ancestors or, or descendants, for instance, you take the story of Joseph, right? And, and Joseph, the dreamer, he was taken as a slave into Egypt, but then everyone he seems to encounter in Egypt seems to be blessed by Joseph. Potiphar and his house, and then the entire prison where Joseph ends up, and then because he can interpret dreams, all of Egypt is blessed. His own people are blessed, the Jews, and then we're told the whole world is blessed. They don't die from famine, but they live on the food that, that Joseph has stored up. But if you take that story of Joseph out of the doctrine of election, what you're left with becomes something so much less right, often becomes a treatise on who makes the team and who doesn't, on who gets to heaven and who doesn't. But when you put the story back in, then election becomes a marvelous account of how God intends to save his world. Baptism <clears throat> is a lot like that. As we were saying earlier, baptism is really a story it's the story of Jesus' death and his resurrection and how in baptism we are united with Jesus. And because we are united with Jesus, we go through those events with him. It's just like two people when they are married, right? They live events together. If one spouse is, is demoted or promoted, the other spouse lives that experience with them. And baptism tells us that we who are united with Christ, we live that experience of his death and resurrection with him. But when you take the story out of baptism, what does it become? It becomes something we all tend to fight about as Christians, right? Do we have the mode of baptism right? Should we sprinkle or should we pour or should we dip or should we immerse? Let's fight about that for a while. Or what age should you be when you actually baptize someone? Let's fight about that for a while. When you take the story out of baptism, it becomes something dried and shriveled up and unrecognizable. And so it is with providence. We mentioned last week that Esther is a story of providence, right? When you bleed the story of providence out of Esther, when you bleed the story out of providence itself, providence begins to sound like sound something like a computer program, right? Everything is, everything is decided in advance. Everything moves according to a plan, right? I get my Starbucks coffee in the morning, I spill it all over my lap as I'm merging onto the freeway. And when my nerves begin to tell my brain what just happened, I total my car. When I total my car, I'm late for my meeting at work. When I'm late for my meeting, I don't get the account. I don't get the promotion I wanted. And my downfall begins. 
And there was nothing I could have done about it because it's all pre-programmed by God. That's the way a lot of us think about providence. Let me give you a, a definition of providence. Providence is the idea that a sovereign God, God who controls everything, a sovereign God exercises complete control over the universe while working through the ordinary laws of physical and human nature. Isn't that a little dry? It's a definition of, of providence. And a definition like that leaves us with all sorts of questions, doesn't it? I mean, if, if God has it all planned out, if he's in control of everything, then why should we pray? I mean, why does it matter? Are we really going to change the mind of God? Is he really going to alter his plans because I knelt down and prayed? And what about evil, right? How do we account for evil? You want to know when I hear the doctrine of providence affirmed most in the church? It's when people buy a house. <clears throat> when people buy a house. For some reason, people seem to think that God is really into real estate. I mean, you've heard the very same things that I'm saying, right? People will tell you, you know, we looked and we looked and we looked for the right house and we just could not find the right one. Either the location was bad or the, the money was too much or, you know, the layout, the floor plan just wasn't right, and we could not find anything. And then, all of a sudden, God led us to just the perfect house. It was all God's providence. It was all God's providence. That's when the outcome is good, of course. When the foundation begins to crumble on that perfect house, no one talks about God's providence. It never gets mentioned again. God's hand is orchestrating everything. If that's the case, then what do we do? What do we say when bad things come our way in life? Now again, that's the doctrine of providence. And like John Timmer says, <clears throat> the doctrine of providence is like the chemical formula H2O. You can survive without the formula. But the story of providence... The story is like a cup of cold water in the wilderness. The story is what you want. Esther tells the story of providence. Esther is not a doctrinal thesis. Esther is a story. And as Esther tells the story of providence, it puts into narrative form three of the grand themes in all of Scripture. And we're going to look at those themes that, that, that Esther brings up in this little book. We're going to begin with the first one, and that is the theme of God's faithfulness to his promises. Okay, the certainty that comes along with God's word. Um, you heard testimony to this today in the mouth of, of Haman's wife, Zeresh, the second time she talks. When Haman rushes home in embarrassment and he's got to confess to his friends and his wife that he just had to lead Mordecai through the city of Susa on the king's horse, wearing the king's robes, all of that, Zeresh looks at him and she immediately catches the big picture. And she says, look, 
Since Mordecai is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And what Zeresh is alluding to here is the certainty of God's word. She gets it. In Genesis 12, way back then, God made a promise to Abraham that through him, as I said earlier, God was going to save the whole world. It's a part of the story that we read as a background to baptism today. Abraham, through you I will bless all the nations of the world, said God. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And Zeresh gets that. That what God says, he will do. And friends, providence is actually the day by day, the moment by moment, working out of God's promises. They are his accountability to what he has said. I heard a, uh, <clears throat> I heard a conversation this week with someone who is basically um, a reputation repairman. Okay? He's one of the people you turn to when you have huge regrets over something you have posted on social media. Okay? The first thing this guy says is rather proactive. And he says, nobody ever listens to me, but I tell people the same thing over and over again. Before you post anything online, anything in social media, do the grandma test, right? Would I send this to my grandma? And if you wouldn't, then don't post it. But, he says, <clears throat> nobody ever listens to me. We can't help ourselves, right? We get angry and we respond. We get hurt and we lash out. We want to take vengeance in the moment and we say things that we regret later. Now, the reactive way of dealing with those sorts of things, what he says is, this is why social media that deal with disappearing content have become so popular. Things like Snapchat and Instagram story. You can post something and in a little while, it's gone. Okay? It's gone. Disappearing content. <clears throat> I can't be accountable then for the things that I say. How often don't we hear of this kind of thing, right? You have some celebrity who back in the day posted something regrettable, some hurtful statement, and later somebody else dredged it up and now their entire character has fallen into question or valuable sponsorships have been lost, right? Sooner or later, our words will catch up with us and our words will condemn us. Friends, one of the most frightening things I think Jesus ever said is that one day, on the day of judgment, we will be held accountable for every careless word that we have spoken. Jesus will hold us accountable for our words. And friends, we cannot live up to that. But God can. God does not need disappearing content. When he speaks, he means what he says. And he follows through with what he says. 
God says, hold me accountable for my words. And that's providence. It's the moment by moment, day by day, accountability of God to his own word. The working out of his promises. The doing of whatever he said he was going to do. And Zeresh got that. She understood that. The story of Esther is how God himself never speaks a careless word. He never does. He is faithful to every one of them. That's the first theme that Esther plugs us into. It's God's faithfulness to his promises. That his words cannot be undone. Okay? The second theme that we find here is the theme of trouble in this world. And trouble in the sense of what Jesus says in the book of John to his disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. Trouble is prominent in the story of Esther, right? Trouble is constantly confronting God's people here in the person of Haman. Haman is trouble. Haman isn't just out to get Mordecai, right? Because he's mad at him for not showing him honor in the streets. Haman doesn't want just Mordecai. He doesn't have just Mordecai in his sights. He has all of Mordecai's people in his sights. He wants to wipe out all the Jews in Persia. That's what he's got his, his mind on. It's not just about him and Mordecai. There's something much bigger that's going on here. Here again, Esther is giving us a snapshot of something that's been going on since the beginning of history. Remember, all the way back in the garden, right? When Adam and Eve fell into sin, God put a curse on the serpent. And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Enmity. Enmity between the serpent and human beings. In other words, we have an enemy. The serpent is our enemy enemy but god also announced at that time what's often called sort of a precursor to the gospel right the gospel ahead of the gospel to the serpent he said the offspring of the woman will crush your head and you will strike his heel in other words god is going to be the victor one day the offspring of the woman we believe to be jesus christ god will win the battle but but the serpent will try to strike our heels over and over and over and over and over and over again. He will try to, dis- to destroy God's people and God's plan for renewing his whole creation. He will try and try and try. And the book of Esther introduces us or points us to that theme. It introduces us to Haman, right? And who is Haman? Haman is introduced as an Agagite. An Agagite. Agag, we said earlier, was a king. A king of the Amalekites. Mordecai is introduced in this story as a son of Kish. The son of Kish was Saul, the first king of Israel. Mordecai is a son of Saul. Saul and Agag once did battle in Scripture, right? The author of Esther is trying to bring all of this stuff to our mind. The author of Esther is pointing us here to the story, really, of the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites, if you remember, if you don't read 
Read Exodus 17 sometime today. But the Amalekites were the very first people who when God um, brought his people out of Egypt, he was on his way bringing them to Sinai to make them uh, a formal covenant that they would be his people forever. The Amalekites actually attacked the Jews on their way to Sinai and tried to wipe them out. They were the first people to try to wipe out God's people. And God said, forever after, I will be against the Amalekites. I will not allow them to do this. And if you remember that battle, right? To most people, it was just another battle, a little forgotten battle that took place outside of Egypt. But if you remember that battle, it was the one that, uh, that Moses had to keep his arms raised, right? And if his arms were raised, then the, the Israelites were winning. And if his arms fell, the Agagites were winning. And so Aaron and Hur actually had to sit Moses on a rock. And then one would stand on each side and they held his arms up. He couldn't do it himself. But they held his arms up so that Israel would actually win the battle. Right? And that's kind of what this fight has been like ever since. We can't do it on our own. We need help. But what we have to understand when we read that account is it wasn't just some random battle. It was an attempt by Amalek to wipe out all of God's people and his plan of salvation. Amalek is part of the serpent. He's part of our enemy. He's an enemy of God's people. Right? He's part of the serpent's attempt to undo what God is doing. Now, in the story of Esther, we find Haman, an Amalekite, trying to dispose of Mordecai, the, king, or the son of King Saul, and wipe out the Jews completely. Haman here represents the enemy of God's people. Haman alerts us to the fact that God's people are always in a battle. We are always in a battle. Friends, how often have you thought to yourself, this being a Christian stuff is hard? It's hard. It's not easy to be a Christian. It's hard to resist sin. It's hard to train up your children in the way that they should go. It's hard to do ministry, right? It's hard to be a Sunday school teacher. You find yourself saying things like, you know, I keep trying to teach my three cares that there's a difference between fatalism and providence and they just don't seem to get it. It's hard. It's hard to grow in character. It's hard to kill off the old self. It's hard to build a strong Christ-honoring marriage. It's hard to be persistent in prayer. It's hard to grow in compassion toward other people that we don't understand. And this is where Esther would say, of course it's hard. There's trouble in this world. You're in a battle. I always think back to something that, that Ben Patterson wrote. Ben Patterson used to be a chaplain at, <clears throat> at Hope College, at least when I was aware of him. And he, he wrote this. He said, when a soldier is shot at, he isn't shocked. His feelings aren't hurt. He doesn't peek his head out of the foxhole and say, was it something I said? Rather, a soldier expects it, and he plans on it. 
That's spiritual realism. And in the same way, friends, we should not take it personally when we are attacked or we're tired or we're depressed. Things like that go with the territory of being a Christian. We are in a spiritual battle and we should expect those things. We should expect them. But we should also remember the first point of this story. And that is that there is no plot, there is no plan that can frustrate God's purposes that stretch from Genesis all the way to Revelation. There is no plan that can frustrate God's purposes. If anything, our frustrations ought to make us what? Run to God in prayer and ask Him for help. You see, the story of providence sends us running to God, not skeptically running away from Him. Those are the first two themes, the certainty of God's Word and also the certainty of trouble. The final theme is the certainty of God's signature salvation acts. God's signature salvation acts, the riot of reversal. The story of Esther is a story of reversal, right? It's all, it's all about something that looks one way to us and it ends up something totally different. The Persians begin the story feasting and living their hearts out. At the end of the story, it's the Jews who are feasting. At the beginning of the story, it's a mighty king who thinks he controls the whole world, but at the end of the story, he just becomes a pawn that carries out the wishes of his new queen. Haman, at the beginning of the story, he's the prime minister of, of Persia. He's on the cusp of wiping out the entire Jewish people. But at the end, he is wiped out himself by the Jewish people. And many of the Persians are actually trying to become Jews. They want to become Jews themselves. And friends, this is God's signature way of redeeming. His signature way. He brings down the proud and he lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry with good things and he sends the rich away empty. If you recognize those words, they were the words of another young woman who lived much later than Esther. Her name was Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's how God works. The riot of reversal. And yet, don't you just wish that there was some way that you could verify that it was happening? Don't you just wish that there was something that you could see, that you could point to, and you would know for sure that, that yeah, this is what God is doing. If we could just see proof of this, proof of God lifting up the humble, right? I mean, in the book of Esther, there are, there are all of these coincidences that we can actually point to and say, you know, this was God at work. This was God at work. The fact that Xerxes gets drunk in the very beginning and he makes a very stupid decision and then his queen decides, well, I'm not going to play along with you. It seems like a coincidence, but then Esther becomes queen, right? 
And she rises to a place of strength. Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot to kill the king. The king forgets, but then he has a sleepless night, experiences a little insomnia, and he remembers the whole story. I've got to do something good for Mordecai. Haman just happens to be there at the time. So he tells Haman, this is what I want you to do for Mordecai. And the story goes on and on, right? It ends in Haman's death. All of these little coincidences along the way, And now we look back and we can point to them and we say, you know, that was God's hand. That was God's hand here. That was God's hand there. But we can't do that in our lives, can we? We can't connect the dots in the same way, at least least rarely. Every so often we might have something happen in our life and we can point back to something else that happened and say, oh, that's why that happened, but not normally. Right? You can't point to the fact that, well, I ran out of bread and I had to run to the grocery store on Monday morning and somehow that led to the salvation of my children. It just doesn't work that way. And so we ask ourselves, I just wish there was something, some way, something we could point to and see that really God is at work. And one day, things are going to end up in life for me and not death. Friends, there is something we can point to, isn't there? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Something that really happened in our world, in our history, on the very same ground that we walk on, the most humble man of us all, our sinless Savior, was crucified as a criminal. He was dead. He was put in the ground, and God raised him up to new life. And we can point back to that and say, God really did it, and he's going to do it again. And friends, that's why we have these little things called sacraments. The Lord's Supper and baptism. Because they tell the story of our faith. They bring the truth of the cross to bear on our lives again and again and again The fact that Jesus died and has been raised. The riot of reversal. The sacraments, friends, are not doctrines. They are story. They are Jesus' story. They're my story. They're your story. And today they're also Joshua's story and Benjamin's story. United to Christ. The one thing we can point to and we can know, hey, this is going to turn out all right. Let's bow together in prayer. (coughs) Lord Jesus, don't ever stop telling us the story, the story of Jesus' death 
and his resurrection. The story of how death was defeated forever and how we have new life in Jesus Christ. Give us the faith to know that that story is real. It's true. And it's our story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.